just got back from India and it was a little jet lagged, so not sure what I said, <laughs> how much you remembered. Uh, this time I'm not jet lagged, so that's a good thing. Um, but it's good to be back, and so today um, I want to speak on um, the book of Revelation, and um, I've entitled this message, A Trusting Church. And uh, by way of introduction, um, 1944, uh, June, was known as D-Day, and uh, the Allied troops invaded Normandy Beach and began to push back the German uh, Nazi regime. That was June 1944, but it wasn't until 1945 that V-Day happened. The war ended and Japan surrendered. A guy by the name of Oscar Coleman uh, makes this analogy. He says that we live between D-Day and V-Day as Christians. We, we live in this um, space where we haven't experienced full victory, uh, but Jesus uh, began that conquest when he came and rescued us from sin, when he died on the cross, that was D-Day. And so what happens between D-Day and V-Day, he says, is conflict and struggle. And so we live in this overlap. We live in the, the here but the not yet, where we experience conflict and tension and the consequences of sin. And so today, I want to explore the topic of hope. Because that's what we long for. We long for hope, don't we? We long for the conflict and the struggle to end in this world. And so we live between D-Day and V-Day. We live be- between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. And so, uh, by way of illustration, I want to take us to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and look at a church called Philadelphia. Now, um, the book of Revelation is a letter, and it was a circular letter, and I think we have a picture of um, the map of Asia Minor coming up here. And so, uh, this is a picture of Asia Minor in the first century. It's modern day Turkey. And as you can see, there are seven cities around Asia Minor there. And uh, these weren't the only churches in Asia Minor, but these were seven prominent churches. And so if you wanted to send a letter out um, to uh, Laodicea, let's just say, you would send it to Ephesus, and then it would go to Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And so you had the circular uh, letter route, this ancient mail route. And so that's how uh, people communicated in the first century, by way of letter. Now, it'd be the same today if you wanted to send a letter to Chicago or Peoria, where I'm from. You would send it in the mail, and it would travel around and and circulate to different cities. And so this is how um, the book of Revelation was uh, intended to be distributed. And so the letter was to be read out loud by assembly of believers. We we learn in chapter 1. And every synagogue in the city would be responsible for reading the letter. Now, interesting enough, 80% of the people in the ancient world didn't know how to read. And so the book, book of Revelation is structured in symbols and a lot of repetition. And so uh, the book of written, Revelation was written by John. 
Now, John was an apostle of Jesus. His brother was James. And uh, we read in Acts chapter 12 that James was actually martyred and killed by King Herod. And so John has outlived all of the disciples. And this is a time um, where uh, the Christian church was persecuted uh, by Nero and Domitian and some Roman emperors. And jo- John has uh, been exiled to this island on Patmos. And he's, he's on this island and he receives this vision from Jesus. And that's where the book of Revelation opens up. And so we have this book of Revelation about Jesus from Jesus. And so the, the Christians in the first century were facing twin threats. They were facing um, threats from the Roman Empire. And they were facing threats from the Jewish uh, Christians. And so they were tempted by tribulation or uh, they were tempted by social seduction. Uh, some were physically persecuted. If you visit the Colosseums today, uh, thousands of Christians were martyred and, and killed. And so you had this twin threat that the Christians were facing either conflict or, or compromise. And so the battle between uh, the Roman Empire and the kingdom of God... And so you had this battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, which was Rome. And so Jesus gives this vision to John, and it's to seven specific churches. Now, like I said earlier, there were seven, there were more than seven churches, but this is what we have recorded in the book of Revelation. So these were real churches with real people. And so if you know anything about the church... The church is full of real people, with real situations, with real problems. And so the, the church is facing these oppositions, social seduction and physical persecution. So just a little bit about the church in Philadelphia. It was a young city. It was founded by uh, a king, by the Pergamum king, Eumenes. And it was given uh, its name in honor of his brother. Uh, and so uh, if you're familiar with the name uh, Philadelphia, it means the city of brotherly love. And it was located in a very uh, fertile soil region. And so you had a lot of luscious wine and grapes and harvest. Uh, in fact, the chief uh, god there was Dionysus. He was a goddess, god of wine and grape harvest. And so if you wanted your wine and grape harvest to, to flourish and to succeed, you would pray to this, this god, Dionysus. But with the um, fertile soil of the ground also came the downside of that, which was it was very susceptible to, volcan- uh, to earthquakes. And so an earthquake destroyed the city in AD 17. And in fact, uh, the emperor Tiberius uh, sent money to help rebuild the city. And uh, they were so grateful that they actually named the city New C- New, uh, Neo-Caesarea, which means New Caesar. But the name didn't st- stick, and so it went back to Philadelphia. And a few years later, they renamed the city after another Roman emperor named Flavia, but it didn't stick, and so they changed the name back to Philadelphia. And so you had this whole identity, uh, this community in the ancient world who really didn't know who they were. They didn't know um, their true identity. And so this is where we pick up the book of Revelation chapter 3, the church in Philadelphia. 
So if you have a Bible or a device, uh, follow along. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Let me stop right there. Now, angel is just a symbol in the book of Revelation. Uh, We find out in chapter 1, there are seven angels, seven golden lampstands, seven churches. So an angel is just really a symbol that John uses for, really just means messenger. It can be translated messenger, pastor. It's just the pastor of the church. He says, write these words, the words of the one holy, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have little power. And you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep before you the, the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast onto what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall, shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down from God. Out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. And so we have this uh, form kind of in the book of Revelation. We have this, each letter kind of is written the same way. You start out with a, uh, usually a picture of Jesus. And then usually Jesus will either praise the church or he will condemn the church. And then every letter ends with a phrase, Um, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a book of promises. Each letter has a promise. And so Jesus is promised the Messiah. He's the David David King who will rescue the world from the sin and evil. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, we learn that because of Jesus' sacrifice, the the veil of the, the temple had been torn, and now we have access to God. In the Old Testament, the Jews had access to God, right? Remember the, the temple of, of God, only certain people could get in. The, the high priest could only access the temple once a year. But now because of Jesus, he gives us access to the door. Uh, he gives us access to God. And so keys in scripture represent authority, right? Whoever has the key has the authority. I don't have a key to your church. I don't have any authority. Some of you have a key to the church. You can come and go as you please, right? And so this particular reference is referenced back to Isaiah 22. You don't have to turn there right now. But if you want to go back and read the story, it's a story about um, uh, Hezekiah. And there was a chief of staff uh, named Shebna. And Shebna was caught up in a personal scam. And um, as a result, God uh, had something unusual to say to him. He says, I will take him, he's talking about Shebna, and whirl him around and hurl him into a far country. And so it was a prediction that Shebna would be sent to Babylon and he would be replaced by a godly godly man named Elohim, um, who God says, I will place on his shoulders the key of the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. 
And that's Isaiah twenty two seventeen. And so here in Revelation, oftentimes as you look at the book of Revelation, uh, you have to know your Old Testament because John will frequently reference the Old Testament. And so you have a lot of allusions to the Old Testament, and this is one of them, Isaiah 22. And so here Jesus is referred to the, uh, the one who says, uh, you know, John is referring back to him. He's the one who has a key. He's the one that gives us access. Uh, the Jews, uh, the Christians that are in Philadelphia are in conflict with the Jews in the synagogue. The Jews think they have this special access to God, that they are the only ones, that they are the true people of God. And, and Jesus says, no, my people are the Christians in Philadelphia, the ones who have true access to God, and I have the key, and I've given them access to God. So we continue reading in uh, Revelation 3, verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. So Jesus, first of all, commends the church. There's only two churches in the book of Revelation that have no criticism from Jesus. Smyrna and Philadelphia. The rest of them either have praise and Jesus finds something wrong with them. Or Laodicea, which is the only church that he gives no praise to, only condemnation. And so Jesus says, I know your works. That word know there is, is, is a very intimate word. It's like you know your wife or you know your friends in an intimate way. It's just not knowledge about. It's, it's an intimate knowledge of. And so Jesus is really saying, remember, this is a letter from Jesus and about Jesus. And so these are the words of Jesus. And so Jesus is telling the church in Philadelphia, I know in several letters previous and the one after, he uses this phrase, I know. I know your works. I know your deeds. I know where you live. I know your good works. I know your perseverance. He knows you. And if I could just say this, this one message today, that Jesus knows you. He knows the church in Fort Byron. He knows you individually. He knows your struggles. He knows your good works. He knows you. And so he says, I know you have little strength. This isn't, this isn't a condemnation. He's affirming them. I know you have little strength. I know the challenges you're facing. I know you're worn out. And the church in Philadelphia is saying, look, Jesus, <laughs> I don't know how much more we can take. The physical persecution, it's getting tight. We're getting shut out of the synagogue. But Jesus says, I know you have little power. But you've kept my word. You've not compromised. How many of us know what we should do, but don't do it? And so they are obeying the word of God. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 uh, verse 3 is a key verse. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. 
for the time is near. So the church in Philadelphia is not only hearing the word of God, but they are obeying the word of God. You've not denied my name. This was a real temptation in the time of persecution. So imagine if you're a Christian in the church of Philadelphia, and you've got to make a choice. Say you're a, you're a wine connoisseur, and you're growing a grape harvest, and your grapes aren't growing as good as your neighbor's grapes. What do you do? Do you bow down? Do you compromise? Do you go pray to the Dionysus God of the, the wine and the harvest? Or do you trust the God who gave you the grapes and who will provide for you? What if your, your child is sick? Do you go to the doctor or the God of healing in Philadelphia? Or do you trust the, the ultimate healer in God? You see, the church in America really... Um, it's no different, is it? We're tempted to compromise. We don't really have a lot of physical persecution. Now, you go to India, you go to China, you go to Myanmar, you go to the Sudan, you have Christians all over the world being persecuted every day, literally killed and persecuted for their faith. But the American church, we don't really deal with physical persecution, but we deal with social seduction, don't we? We deal with the temptation to compromise our beliefs. I deal with it every day. You deal with it every day. But the church in Philadelphia was not denying the name of Jesus. In fact, they were enduring patiently. We don't know what kind of persecution they were facing, but Jesus commends them. He says, you are enduring patiently. In other words, you're persevering through the trials and the temptations. So Jesus not only commends the church, but he comforts the church. He says, I've placed an open door that no one can shut. A friend of mine, Bob Lowry, says this, the context suggests that the small number of Christians in Philadelphia were experiencing opposition from the Jews who stressed that they, the Jews, were the true synagogue of Satan, or synagogue of God, not the Christians. Specifically, the Jews had access to God, not the followers of Jesus. And so you had these uh, Jews in the first century that were shutting out the Christians from the synagogue. And uh, the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And they thought they had access to God, but they in fact did not have access to God. Jesus gave them access, access to God. And so doors in the, the Bible are used a couple of different ways. Uh, sometimes they're used as a metaphor for salvation. Sometimes they're used as a door for opportunity. Um, and sometimes it's just a, a door that God is offering us, an opportunity. Um, but here it is salvation. Jesus has opened the door of eternal life that is being questioned by the Jews. And Jesus is comforting, comforting them. So Jesus not only uh, commends them, he not only comforts them, um, he says... Um, that the, the Jews in the, uh, Philadelphia are the synagogue of Satan. They claim to be Jews, but they're liars. And so the Jews in Philadelphia were telling the Christians that we are the people of God, not you. But just as the Lord threw out Shebna and replaced him with Elkahim, the Lord's people are those who embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And so they were called the synagogue of Satan because they re rejected Messiah, Jesus, 
but they still claim to be God's people. And so Jesus says that ultimately um, you will acknowledge me or they will acknowledge me as my people even though you've rejected me. And so Jesus is speaking also of tribulation that will test all the people. He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. In other words, you're going to suffer through some temptation. You're going to suffer through some persecution, but you're going you're to survive. You're going to come out um, in the end. Another interesting phrase here is the inhabitants of the earth. It's a phrase, uh, earth dwellers, that's used 10 times in the book of Revelation. It describes people who are solely focused on the earth. That's where the earth dwellers get their name. Those inhabitants of the earth. It's used in reference to either enemies of God or, or um, enemies of God's people. And so their sole f- focus is on this world. And you and I know people like that, don't we? Who just focus on the world the temporary things of the world. And you and I can easily get distracted, right? By, by all kinds of things in this world that take our eyes off Jesus. But he says, I am coming soon. Isn't that a hopeful statement? That Jesus is coming soon? You missed a good chance to say an amen right there. I know it's late. It's almost lunchtime. Isn't that a hopeful statement that Jesus is coming soon? That one day, as believers, we won't suffer anymore from the trials and temptations of this world? So he was giving them hope, he was giving them a sense of expectation. So every letter ends with the phrase, to the one who overcomes. And so, this is interesting. The word there is Nike. Not just do it. They, they stole it from the Bible. But the word is Nike. It, it means to persevere, to endure, to overcome. It's used 28 times in the book of Revelation. And it ref- references, outside of the New Testament, a Roman goddess named Nike. And she was the winged goddess of Rome's vision of victory and imperial conquest. So it's a very politically loaded term. And so John uses that term to say, no, no, Rome's not going to conquer. You think Rome's conquering the world politically? Jesus is going to conquer the world. He's the one that who's overcome. And he gives the promise of you who will overcome present tense and so uh, in fact the word uh, or the, the symbol of Nike we use it today all the time you probably didn't even realize it I didn't realize it uh, if, you, if you look at a gold medal uh, on the gold medal you will see the wing goddess of Nike so our Olympic games even use the symbol of Nike he says I will also make you a pillar now, I think we have some pillars up here, uh, some p- pillars from the ancient world. Look at those babies. Those are massive structures, aren't they? Those are some massive pillars. And so, 
pillars were often the most secure structures in an earthquake. And I, I said earlier that they dealt with earthquakes. And so um, oftentimes when an earthquake would happen, they would run out to these open fields. And these, earth, these pillars would be the only thing standing after an earthquake. And so they would be fearful, they were insecure, they would experience these aftershocks, they didn't know when they were going to happen some 20 years later after these earthquakes. And so uh, Jesus says, I will make you a pillar. You don't have to be scared anymore. You shall go no, you shall no more go outside. The, the NIV says, never again will they leave it. And so Jesus says, I'm going to make you a pillar. You're going to be strong. He also says, I will write on them the name of my God. Ancient pillars in the, uh, the first century, uh, people would write on uh, the name of the pillars, um, inscribed names of honorable people. I will write on them the name of New Jerusalem. Remember, uh, we talked about earlier that Philadelphia had changed its name several times. And so I think John's kind of uh, just poking at their, their name change a little bit. The Roman emperor's name's not going to change or not going to stay the same. Flavia is not going to stay the same. But I'm going to write on you the name of the new Jerusalem. I will give you the name of the new Jerusalem, an eternal name, an eternal city. And I will write my new name on it. So Jesus, again, is probably just kind of prodding and poking at the Philadelphia church. You think your name is Philadelphia? You think your name is New Caesarea? You think your name is Flavia? No, those are just temporary names. I'm going to write on you an eternal name that's not going to go away. So Jesus commends the church. He comforts the church. But he also commands the church. Now, interesting enough, uh, like I said earlier, Jesus gives no rebuke to the city. But he does command them. And the first one is this. Verse 8. If you have a, a Bible, you, can, you may see this word see or look. I think the NIV has. Uh, the, the ESV says, Behold. You can circle that word in the Bible. See, behold. It's, a, it's, a, it's an attention-getting word. It means pay attention. Look up here. Fix your eyes. How many people remember the old cartoon Foghorn Leghorn? Come on. I know the teenagers are gone, so they wouldn't get it. But Foghorn Leghorn, what was this famous line? Pay attention. Boy, come on. Pay attention, right? Pay attention. Pay attention, my boy. And that's what Jesus is really saying. Pay attention. Get your eyes on me. Focus on me. You remember we talked about the earth dwellers. They're, they're focused. Their eyes are on the ground. Their, their focus is on this world. Their focus is on their 401k. Their focus is on their children. Their focus is on their conflict at work. Their focus is on things that are just temporary. And what Jesus is saying is, pay attention. Look up here. Fix your eyes on me. 
Jesus is uh, John's favorite term in the book of Revelation for uh, the enemies of God are the earth dwellers. Do you know what his favorite term for the believers is? Saints. You know what a saint is? Holy. We sing about it. Holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. It's the word saint. It's the people who fix their eyes on a holy God and, and take their eyes off of this world. So Jesus says, Behold. It's a powerful command. It's the most common command in the book of Revelation. It's not repent. It's not do this. It's not be faithful. It's behold. The most common command in the book of Revelation is behold. Fix your eyes on this world. I love that old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and his grace. Behold, focus on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon him. No matter what your situation is, you may be a single mom with three kids and you're just struggling to hang on. Behold, turn your eyes upon Jesus. You may be in a marriage that is just off the rails, you're on the verge of divorce. You've gone to counseling, you've struggled, you've tried to to make it work. And Jesus is saying to you, just behold, as tough as it is, behold, focus on me. Take your eyes off the situation and just behold, whatever your situation is today, behold, turn your eyes upon Jesus. But that's not the only command he, he gives us. The second command is, Hold on to what you have. The, the church in Philadelphia, Philadelphia was also known as Little Athens. They had games, they had festivals, and at the end of these games, victors would receive a crown. And so Jesus says, hold on so that you don't lose your crown. It's the sign of victory. You've endured, you've persevered, hold on. Uh, most of us have probably read the story about the um, 12 boys that are trapped in uh, a cave in Thailand. And it's just a horrible situation. If you, if you have kids, if you think about it, I mean, just imagine your 11-year-old, your 12-year-old, your 13-year-old stuck in a cave with no real sense of hope. And I just was reading this morning uh, before uh, I came up here that four of the boys have been rescued. And so they're beginning this, um, they're beginning this rescue situation. And so you have four boys out and you have eight boys and a coach still down there. And, and if you know the situation, you know, they were, they were hiking and they were uh, traveling and they got stuck in this cave and, and the waters rose up and they ended up getting trapped. And so they're in this cave below the earth and the air supply is, is waning. Um, and they're just, they're, for weeks they've been just struggling. And I think the message that a lot of the people around the world were saying was, look, hold on. 
Just hold on just a little bit longer. Help is on the way. Just hold on. And, and maybe some of the boys in the, the, the cave were just telling each other, hold on. Come on, you can make it. We're going to make it. We're going to get through this. Just hold on just a little bit longer. Help is on the way. And so interesting enough, today uh, I was reading, they, they, they coined this operation D-Day. And one of the lead rescuers says this in an article. He said, finding the boys doesn't mean we finished our mission. It's only a small battle we've won, but the war has not ended. The war ends when we win all three battles. The battle of the search, rescue, and send them home. And friends, that is our battle. We live between D-Day and V-Day. We live between the first coming of Jesus and his final coming. And one day we will experience V-Day. But until then, we will deal with conflict and struggle. We will deal with disappointment and failure. But the message to the church in Philadelphia and the message to you and me today is the same. Behold, fix your eyes upon Jesus and hold on. Because one day, he's coming back and we're going to go home. Let's pray. Insecure.